the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. It's Friday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is to provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you, the safest way to call if you're driving in your car is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, thank you for your prayers for Paula. They arrived safely in Houston, so please keep praying for her. She's speaking two times uh, tomorrow at uh, the Pastors, Wives, and Ministry Leaders Women's Conference in Houston. And uh, Paula talked about it a little bit yesterday on the program, and I know she'll do great, but she's always a little bit nervous when when uh, she's asked to speak out in other places. So please keep her in your prayers. And of course, on Fridays, I like to remind you that this is a church weekend. You know, we have a pastor's discipleship class um, every other Saturday, and uh, I always close it by saying, tomorrow's work day. Um, we need to realize that Sunday is a work day. It's not a day off. It's not a weekend day where we can just chill. It's a work day. We can go to church to be a blessing to others. Ask God for some divine appointments. Ask God for spiritual discernment, for gifts of wisdom and knowledge. And he will bring people to you where you can exercise those gifts. And that's when church really comes alive. Not only are you learning what the Word says and how to apply it in your life, but you're also being used by God to help others learn it as well. And that is a wonderful, wonderful process. So, um Go to church. Maybe the last person will get saved this weekend. And if they do, we'll all be out of here. Wouldn't that be great? Paula wouldn't have to drive home from Houston. I could just meet her in the air. That would be wonderful. Uh, tonight at 7 o'clock here at the church, I'm going to be teaching uh, the end of Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. So that's at 7 o'clock. You can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. Or it's even better. We've typically got room on Friday nights. Uh, you can uh, just show up and enjoy it with uh, in fellowship with other people. One other prayer request, our junior high lock-in is here tonight at the church, so please be in prayer about that. Uh, my youth pastor, junior high pastor, emailed me and he said, you know, the older I get, now he's like 25, the older I get, the harder these things are. Uh, just pray that the Lord will meet them in a powerful way. These lock-ins are fun. The kids have a great time, but 
but we we really try to make them all about Jesus here. And and um, you know, typically they'll bring kids that aren't saved, and kids get saved. So that would be our prayer. Okay, we got a bunch of questions that came in, so let me get to those, and then we will get to phone um, calls that come in. This is anonymous from our mobile app. How to determine if an individual is ready for marriage? Uh, that's a really hard one, and it's so general. I can't be specific, um, but 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 it's all based on on that person's walk with Jesus. Uh, if a person is looking for uh, a husband or a wife to fulfill their needs, they're not ready for marriage. If that person is um, getting married because they're lonely or because, well, you know, I want to have sex, they're not ready for marriage. Marriage is a commitment before God to stay married forever in good times and bad, in sickness and health, for richer or for poor. In other words, circumstances can't change the decision we make once we stand up and we make that commitment before the Lord, before our friends and families. Otherwise, our witness is damaged terribly. So how do you determine if somebody's ready? Are they selfish? Is the marriage about them? Um, what do you observe in terms of their walk with Jesus? That's the most important thing. And if both the prospective bride and groom are are looking to serve Jesus together, um, then they're probably ready for marriage. But it can't be for selfish reasons. Um, you know, we put so much pressure on ourselves. Sometimes if we're looking for somebody to fulfill our needs, uh, that, that relationship is doomed before it gets started because another human being simply cannot fulfill our needs. Only God can. Husbands, uh, prospective husbands need to remember that we're to put our wife's needs ahead of our own. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. We're to, to wash her in the water of the word. We're to help her fulfill the calling that God has in her life. You know, we husbands, uh, we like being the head of the household. We think that makes us boss, but we often don't like the responsibility that goes with it. So the, the man in a prospective marriage needs to be committed to taking the leadership role, to be committed to Bible study, to be committed to walking together uh, with his wife to, to in service, but, but also a man of prayer. Uh, very, very important concepts. The wife needs to know that this is a man who loves Jesus more than she does, or at least as much as she does. And that's important because uh, if not, there's going to be this this fight for attention, and Jesus isn't going to fight. He's going to leave you to your own. So um, maturity matters. Now, the world that we live in, you know, we've diminished marriage to the point where We've just decided, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll just divorce and start over again. And um, I, I think it's fairly easy to look at uh, people and see what their level of maturity is. But but selflessness rather than selfishness, commitment to Jesus, and the fruit that comes from their lives before they're married, all of those things would determine whether or not they're ready for marriage. And i got to be honest with you, Anonymous, most of the people, especially young people that get married, not exclusively because there's a lot of old people that are selfish as well, but most of the people that get married young uh, are really not committed to Jesus Christ. They're committed to, to each other sometimes, but again, apart from Christ, that doesn't last very long. Um, it all starts, a solid marriage all starts with Jesus Christ. So if the person that you're talking about, or even if you're talking about yourself in, in this question, um, what's your walk with Jesus like? What does the fruit look like coming from your lives? And are you ready to put somebody else ahead of yourself uh, and your needs? Remember, Jesus will not wrestle with you over who gets priority. He's simply going to back away and let you mess things up. And then hopefully we call out to Jesus before it's too late. But uh, marriage is not disposable as we have made it in the in this country and even sadly often in the church. So Anonymous, without more specifics, that's the best I can do. 
340-9585 for your questions today. Here is a question, um, also anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, will we have free will in heaven? Will we have the ability to sin? No, we won't have the ability to sin. When we get to heaven, we are going to have bodies just like Jesus. Um, glorified physical but glorified resurrected bodies and and the, the best thing that happens with that body is that these old bodies with the sin nature that won't go away these old bodies will be completely uh, destroyed completely done away with and the new body that we we get it'll be like Jesus's body uh, it will not contain a sin nature and because we've made that choice by faith to serve Jesus Christ we will not I have the ability to sin at all. Now, I also like to answer it this way. Will we have free will in heaven? The answer is yes. But you see, with this new body, this glorified resurrected body, we will want to do only that which God wants for us. And the reason that's so wonderful is because um, we'll be like him and our will and his will will line up perfectly Thy will be done in heaven or on earth, he says, as it is in heaven in his model for prayer. Uh, once we get to heaven, we don't have to worry about his will. His will is going to be done, and it's exactly what we'll want. David, in his Psalms, he said, um, um, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. On earth, uh, the desires of our heart are sort of corrupted, corrupted by um, flesh, by the world around us. But in heaven, we truly will delight ourselves in the Lord. And heaven will be the fulfillment of the desires uh, in our hearts. So, good question. Good news. We will not have to worry about that at all. Jeremiah, from our email inbox, he wants to talk about Jeremiah. So he says, uh, I'm struggling with how to apply a New Testament perspective to Jeremiah. Um, in general, and Jeremiah 15 in particular, speaks of Israel's constant rejection of God and his fourfold response. And the fourfold response he has is death, the sword, starvation, captivity. Are these promised consequences for nations today, or were they exclusive to Israel? I know there will be judgment during the Great Tribulation, but can people on earth today whose nations at one point were committed to the Lord but no longer are expect similar judgment before the tribulation um, before the tribulation the answer is no um, Jeremiah um, on this in this world before the great tribulation um, I, I prefer the term consequences rather than judgment uh, individually when we sin, um, there, there is always going to be consequences, and and often it's just God removing His hand and letting letting us have our way, and then we have to deal with the consequences from those choices. Uh, we should all know that if we, Paul said, if we sow to the to the flesh, we're going to reap from the flesh. If we sow to the spirit, we'll reap uh, from the spirit. Uh, so, um, um, before the great tribulation, consequences will come. After the Great Tribulation, of course, that's God's wrath being poured out. Um, um, we're, we're, we're talking about the judgment of the whole world and then Jesus establishing his kingdom. Now, you asked about, um, is this just to Jeremiah or to Israel in general, or what are the uh, people on earth today? What is what is our relationship to these things? Remember, and this is so important when speaking, uh, uh, reading the prophets. Um, the the word specifically is through the prophet to Israel. And Israel, the reason they were told that if they didn't repent, death, the sword, starvation, and captivity would occur. And Jeremiah, that's exactly what happened. Um, God, uh, you know, Jeremiah's prophecy was in Jerusalem um, during that 40-year period of time leading up to the, the arrival of the Babylonians and complete and utter destruction of the city and of the temple. And Jeremiah kept saying, this is what's going to happen. And, and certainly those things did happen. And Jeremiah's prophecies were fulfilled precisely as God said they would be. So, um, that was the judgment of God. 
whether it was Assyria in the north or Babylon in the south, um, uh, God used foreign nations, in many cases nations that were far more evil, far more wicked than Israel was, but he used those nations as instruments of judgment. He even called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. So that's very important to understand. It was a specific message. Now, there are principles we can apply, and here's that principle. If we don't do what we know is right, you remember God saying to Cain, well, why are you so downcast, Cain? And, and, and he said, if you do what is right, will it not go well with you? That is a principle that we can take all the way through the Bible, including to the very time that we live in. Um, and um, um, th- there will be consequences for being rebellious against the Lord. Now, one other comment here, Jeremiah. There also will be, um, in Israel's kingdom, the millennial kingdom after the Great Tribulation, a judgment of nations. And those nations, the sheep and the goats is what Jesus called it, those nations will be judged based on how they treated God's people, Israel. So um, these prophecies were specific and fulfilled. There is principal application. I'm going to have a question a little bit later that comes on um, a couple questions down the road, I think. Um, where there is both short-term and long-term fulfillment. Uh, but this one in spe- specifically is simply God through Jeremiah telling the people that if they don't repent, these things would happen. And you remember, Jeremiah for 40 years was faithful in his ministry without evidently a single convert. Nobody believed him. And uh, they tried to cut up his scrolls. They they threw him in a cistern to die. Uh, you know, they just didn't want to hear the bad news. People would say, say something good, say something good. And, and Jeremiah would say, you know, I've got to say what the Lord told me to say. That happened with other prophets as well. And the reality is that there were those horrible consequences and the death and destruction was worse than ever. And by the way, Jesus also made some of those same prophecies um, in his Olivet Discourse when he looked out over Jerusalem and wept. Oh, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew what that had come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you didn't recognize the time of my visitation, the time of my coming. And because they didn't, then he prophesied of the complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem and the temple during his time uh, in 70 AD by the Romans under the Roman general Titus. So the principles apply to us, but the prophecy itself is specific. One of the things, and I won't go into detail here, but one of the things that we have to do when we're reading the Old Testament, especially the prophets, is we have to read those letters in context. To whom is God speaking? And have those prophecies already been fulfilled? Or is there additional long-term fulfillment as well? So, Jeremiah, thank you for that. And Jeremiah is such a rich, rich book. It's not an easy one to get through, but it is such a rich, rich book. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. You know, we've had a lot of people send questions in, but our phones have been quiet. This is from John H. He says, I recently had a conversation with a brother in Christ who is struggling with a rebellious teenager. The rebellion didn't just happen. It's been brewing for years and it's reached the point where the teenager ran away from home for a period of time. My brother freely confesses, evidently this is a a brother of John H., uh, who's the, 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 the parent here. My brother freely confesses that his own walk with Jesus has been spotty, and he has set a terrible example, in parentheses, his words. But when he discusses the issues, it's always phrased in very confrontational terms. Things like, I've dug my heels in, or I refuse to give in. This phrase, a battle of the wills, is thrown around a lot in our culture. But I know Jesus doesn't want us to be at war with our kids. I believe a kinder, gentler approach is required. But I have no idea how that would work at this point, or even how he should go about it. My only advice thus far has been to pray continually, both for himself and his teen thoughts and suggestions are greatly appreciated. John, I have so much to say, and I, I'm not going to spend the whole half hour or the rest of the half hour on this, but this is so important. The first thing that your brother should do 
and sit down not with just this one child, but he should sit down with his whole family. And he needs to repent and ask for forgiveness for his walk being inconsistent. For somebody to say that I've set a terrible example for my son and then judge his son for for being rebellious, what should he expect that his son would do? You know, the, the Ephesian says that fathers are not to exasperate. Another translation uses the word embitter. We're not to exasperate or embitter our kids. And inconsistency embitters them. And it turns their heart from God. Your brother in this case needs to, to be able to say to them, look, you have not been acting well. You know it, I know it, but this is my fault because the example I set was not consistent, it was not loving. And the reality is that in a case like that, uh, the, the father loses all authority in the home. It is so duplicitous. To, to be able to say, um, um, do this and do that when your walk is so inconsistent. You know, I grew up, John, with a dad whose favorite saying was, Ronnie, do as I say, not as I do. And in a Christian home, it can't be that way. We need to be able to tell our kids, you follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And it is so hypocritical for a father to expect or to have standards for his children that he doesn't live to himself. It's it's really that straightforward. So I think this is where it begins. If, if this man uh, really wants God to be able to work, it has to begin with his repentance as the spiritual head of the household. I know I've told this story before, but when I got saved, my kids were 16 and 18 and I remember calling a family meeting, which we never had, but I called a family meeting and I told them, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. My sins have been forgiven. I'm thrilled, but I'm also a little bit lost in the sense that I don't know what to do. And here's what I said to him. I said, everything I've ever taught you is wrong. I don't know what's right yet, but when I find out, I'll tell you what's right. But everything I've ever taught you is wrong. That was so humbling. But you see, that made my kids listen. After that, if they would have come to me and said, yeah, but Dad, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, I'd say, well, you know, remember, that's the old me. So if I'm, if I'm messing up now, you tell me. But Jesus has forgotten my past and forgiven it. And so now we move forward and we're going to walk in the ways of the Lord. And, and he really needs to do that because unless he does... They won't hear a word that he has to say. And then it's just anger. Now, I want to also address, uh, in the last couple of minutes here, um, you said, I believe, a kinder, gentler approach is required. Um, a, a consistent approach is what's required. We can't be kind or gentle with sin. If children are being disrespectful, they need to be told, that ends now. Uh, my older son was very disrespectful a couple of times to his mother. And even even as an unsaved jerk, I would say to him, say, don't you ever disrespect my wife. There, there can't be kind and gentle reaction to sin. But remember, his life has to have some authority, and the authority comes from being obedient to the Lord. So if I were you, that's how I would pray for them. And um, give the Holy Spirit a chance to move. This isn't a problem that your brother can fix. But God can. And it starts with humility. It starts with understanding our responsibility is to rightly represent the Lord. And because we haven't, we need to ask for forgiveness. We can't just say, okay, well, let's forget about it. Because they're not going to forget about it. There's an enemy in this world. Children today, teenagers, have influences out there that want to destroy them. And they need to know they're loved. And in a situation like this, uh, they just don't know they're loved. So I hope that makes sense to you. But there's just no value at all. No value at all. 
in laying down the law when you yourself aren't keeping the law. That's just the worst kind of hypocrisy. And kids these days just aren't going to go for it. So, John, I hope that helps you a little bit. Um, I refuse to give in his pride. I've dug my heels in his pride. He needs to humble himself. And he needs to genuinely, and, and let me add just one thing. I said he needs to ask for their forgiveness, but he also needs to do so from his wife. He's responsible for that tension in the home. Maybe God will give him some authority from a life that's committed to walking with Jesus in personal holiness. Hope that helps. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. We're down now to one minute, so I don't have a question uh, that's a one-minute question. So let me just say, I do have a one-minute question. It's from Jonathan. Did God lie when Adam and Eve did not die instantly? Jonathan, God cannot lie. That's what Colossians says. Uh, he's a not lying God, literally, is what the Greek says. So anytime you think God lied, you're wrong. No, what Adam and Eve did, they died spiritually, and that's clear from the narrative. Surely you will die. I'm sure they were holding their breath, waiting to die, but the reality is their relationship with God was broken at that point, and they died spiritually, and they lived the rest of their life uh, dealing with sin and the consequences. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the last half of our Friday show. I, I laugh because that two minutes seemed like two seconds and I wasn't quite ready to go on the air. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we would love to take your phone calls and questions, and uh, we're delighted that you would tune in. Here is a question from Scott from our mobile app. He said, Pastor Ron, could you explain who the two priests in the Bible who are not Jewish and their roles as priests? One is Melchizedek, and the other one is Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Scott, let me take uh, Jethro first. Um, You you know, uh, other religions, um, other faith beliefs have priests. Uh, Jethro was a Midianite priest. Um, it doesn't mean that he was uh, what we would call saved. He wasn't a priest representing God. Uh, he was just a priest in a religious sense. Uh, and uh, Paris have some wisdom. Uh, he's the one who told Moses he needed some help, and he, he got it. But uh, uh, he, he's not a priest, a Hebrew priest. He's not um, a priest um, in the order of Aaron uh, at all. Melchizedek is a little bit hard to explain, but it's, it's, it's glorious. Melchizedek was a Christophany or Theophany, whichever term you prefer, uh, prefer. He was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, um, before Jesus' incarnation. And, uh, the Prince of Salem, the Prince of Peace, um, um, the, 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 the a priest after the order, um, not after the order of Aaron, but another priest. But uh, he was simply one. Uh, God uh, appeared in in uh, Melchizedek, uh, and we know that he was uh, a, a, a theophany uh, because Abraham worshipped him, and uh, angels don't receive worship. So um, this was just a New Testament. I'm sorry, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Um, appearing as Melchizedek, um, without genealogy, without beginning or end. Um, I mean, all of the clues are there that explain Scott uh, who he was. So he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, uh, and Abraham worshipped him. Um, so that points him out as as a, a, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. 
Here is a question from Leo from our email inbox. He says, hello, Pastor Ron, I'm praying all is well. Thank you, Leo, all is well. In reading the Bible, and he's got King James Version, the book of Joel 3.1 states, the day of the Lord is near. Verse 1 says, for behold, in those days and in the time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, according to this verse, Judah is from the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, this appears to be a future prophecy according to the scripture. If Christ is bringing Judah from captivity, the Jews who are occupying the land are not captured, therefore do not line up with this prophecy after studying Joel carefully. Verse 2, Judah was scattered among the nations and not in the land yet. I disagree with the 1948 Jews being brought to the land. Be really careful of that one, um, Leo. I disagree with the 1948 Jews being brought to the land because these scriptures are pointing to future prophecy. How could this be? Please explain. Thank you. I will do my best, but you're kind of going down the wrong track. Um, let me read Joel chapter 3, just a couple of the verses as we get into it and, and sort of get you the context. Um, the NIV, the, the 84 NIV says, In those days and at that time. And clearly that is a continuation of the time frame of chapter 2. And that is the time of the Great Tribulation that leads into the Millennial Kingdom. So this is a prophecy that goes down the corridor of time and space uh, to the Great Tribulation and then beyond into the Millennial Kingdom. Now Joel spoke of the last days, a dispensation which began with the ascension of Jesus into heaven. The last days always describes that period of time between his ascension and his second coming. And then he says, In those days and at the time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus came in, he heard the crowds uh, yelling, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. But the next time he hears the crowds saying that, the people, unlike the first time, they're going to mean it. So here's a, a situation where we have dual fulfillment. In a lesser sense, this speaks of the return from Babylonian captivity after 70 years, but has a far greater fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. And here's what he says. He says, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, there's no such place as the valley of Jehoshaphat. That means that Jehoshaphat has to be taken symbolically rather than literally here. The name means God judges in this place and is a reference to the Valley of Megiddo or the battle that we call Armageddon. So this is at the end of the Great Tribulation when Jesus appears. All of the nations in the world will gather for the final battle. That's when Jesus appears. And then the nations are going to sort of try to turn their weapons on Jesus. Uh, and, and it will set the stage for, for the judgment of nations that Jesus called for in Matthew 25 in the Olivet Discourse. So this is not a judgment for salvation, the judgment of nations. The nations will be judged regarding how they treated Israel during the time that they lived in. So then he goes on to talk about um, his protection of Israel and, and this. So this has nothing to do with 1948. Now, there are prophecies, uh, the dry bones prophecy uh, other pro- of Jeremiah, other prophecies that, that Jesus will gather them back, they will be in their homeland, and then, of course, the Christ will come to them, and that's where Jesus returned. So um, that's what Joel is saying. And, and here he's talking specifically in the time of the Great Tribulation and then beyond into the time of the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom on Earth. Thank you, Leo. I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question uh, anonymous. It's just a statement. Uh, Pastor Ron, I was overjoyed at the news of Pastor Greg Laurie's latest baptism at Pirate's Cove where approximately 4,500 people were baptized. It gives one hope that the Word is still doing its work despite the crazy world of California. And for that matter, the United States, we need more people for Jesus because there's infinitely more against Him. Um, you know, God has a remnant. And in these last days, He's gathering that remnant. Now, uh, I, I hadn't read that 4,500 people got baptized, but wouldn't it have been great? I mean, 4,500 people gathered there together uh, at the end of of that baptism, we could have all just been taken into heaven at that instant uh, in the rapture. That would have been wonderful. 
Yeah, so so if, if this is an accurate statement, uh, then we all should rejoice uh, when people get saved. Um, this is, I am sure, sort of uh, motivated by an event that was motivated by the Jesus Revolution movie, which uh, Greg, of course, played a prominent part in. In fact, it was based on a book that he wrote some six years ago. And um, uh, I think the response to the, the movie has been wonderful. Um, but but one thing I can say, Anonymous, um, you don't need the hope that God is still doing his work through his word because Jesus already promised that. It doesn't matter how bad things get. There's always a remnant. And please make no mistake, and this is one of the problems, I think, with Western Christianity is we're looking for big events. You know, the whole world's going crazy. Um, ministry in these last days is only, only directed at the remnant. Jesus is gathering that remnant even now. And Paul says that um, it's waiting until the full number of Gentiles comes in. That uh, means there's a finite number or a limited number of, of non-Jews that are going to get saved. And when that last one gets saved, then we're going to be in heaven with Jesus. And then Jesus will once again turn his attention to the nation of Israel, fulfilling all of his promises uh, that were made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob and beyond. So um, it's always good news. But remember, God's word is always at work. His word will not return to him void. And in some cases, his word is simply going to seal people's judgment. But in other instances, as he goes and picks off this remnant, there are going to be people that are getting saved to the very last day. And then even, um, I'm even more grateful for once the great tribulation, we're raptured out of here and the great tribulation begins, uh, there's going to be one greater, far greater, the greatest revival in the history of the world during that seven-year tribulation led by the two witnesses at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and then the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are supernaturally endowed with power and they're protected by God and they're scattered all over the world to go and get those people uh, who will surrender their hearts to Jesus. The difficulty, of course, then, Anonymous, is going to be that they're going to be uh, asked to sur- surrender their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we find them in in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, uh, those who were martyred in the Great Tribulation, crying out for vengeance. How long, O oh Lord, to avenge our death? And, and the Lord just says, just a little while longer, hold tight, this will get done. Uh, and then, of course, the Great Tribulation runs its course. So I, too, am grateful, rejoicing, that uh, Greg was able to uh, have the event, and I'm even more grateful that it works out really, really well. Here is a question. This one is from Billy. He says, was Jesus in a physical body before he was born as a baby? Billy, no, he was not. Um, um, we don't know what Jesus was, was uh, spirit, just like uh, the Father was spirit and the Holy Spirit was spirit. But he became a man, a human, uh, in his incarnation. In his incarnation, um, when he was implanted in the womb of a teenage virgin, um, and, and Jesus condescended all the way to coming through this birth canal and being born in abject poverty and growing up. I, I, I always marvel thinking about God growing up. Well, that's exactly what happened. God grew up and he learned things until that moment when his ministry was set to go. And, of course, that happened at his baptism before John the Baptist. So uh, he was not in a physical body until his incarnation. And that, Billy, was the greatest sacrifice he could have made. Imagine one minute receiving the worship of angels, uh, one minute holding all things together, according to John chapter 1, holding all things together. And then the next minute finding himself in a birth canal, traveling through a birth canal of a teenage girl. What a shock. Here's a question from Cyril. He says, since the Holy Spirit lives in us, does he ever take over and make us do things right or wrong? Cyril, God never imposes on our free will. 
God wants partners. God doesn't want robots. So he will never impose on our free will. What he does, the Holy Spirit, he helps us to do right, and he convicts us when we're not doing right. So the idea is he gives us direction, but then he empowers us to do that which is right as well. well. But he never makes us do things. Now let me apply your question to the gifts of the Spirit as well, because one of the problems I have, especially with the gift of tongues, is that people are waiting until this sound of a mighty rushing wind hits them, and, and, and they're waiting for God to make them speak in tongues. Jesus already said that all we have to do is ask the Father, and he'll give us what we ask for. If that's in his will, we know the gifts of the Spirit are in his will. So all we have to do is believe and receive. Take Jesus and his word, and then we take steps of faith. And that's when we use our gifts. Um, one of my sons uh, was, was for the longest time saying, well, Dad, um, when's God going to make me do this? Or when's God going to... I said, Ron, he never does that. He never makes you do anything. He's waiting for you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And when you offer yourself, you take that step of faith, and then the Spirit comes alongside and empowers you to do whatever it is. But he'll never simply completely take over, uh, and and you have no control, self-control being a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, he'll never just overwhelm you and force you to do stuff. So, Cyril, I hope that makes sense. He helps us to do what's right. He helps us to know what's right. And when we do wrong, he convicts us of sin. Good question, Cyril. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Margaret says, what does Paul mean when he says that we will judge angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3? Um, he says, do you not know that we'll, we'll, we'll judge angels? Um, you know, what he's talking about is that in the millennial reign, now we don't have any detail on this, Margaret, but what he means is that we will judge angels. Imagine judging fallen angels, those who didn't keep their first estate, um, um, when they are cast into the lake of fire. Uh, we will somehow be instrumental in judging them. Maybe we'll just be examples. Um, maybe we'll be on a jury. I don't know because of the lack of detail. But we will judge fallen angels. They will have no excuse for the decision they made. And, and the idea there is this is that the Corinthians were taking one another to court, suing other believers in front of unbelievers. And Paul is saying, stop that. Stop that. You're embarrassing me is is really the point. And he says, find even somebody of low estate in the church. They would be a better judge than somebody who is an unbeliever. And then to, to emphasize the point, it's 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 hyperbole, but but with with an application. Uh, he says, uh, you're going to be judging angels. You can certainly judge these things that are going on earth. So this was the Apostle Paul sort of rebuking or scolding the Corinthians um, for the shameful depths that they'd fallen into. Thank you for that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Macy. Do other Christians struggle with completely submitting to God like I do? Macy, all Christians struggle with completely submitting to God. Now, here's the thing. When you want to submit to God, you've got to make that choice. And making that choice demands that you say no to you. So whatever it is, whatever the issue is, it could be something as simple as... as uh, you smoke cigarettes and God told you not to, or or maybe you can't stop gossiping about somebody. And then, of course, some other more serious things as well. But the idea is you've got to decide, do I want to please God or do I want to please me? And it's a decision you have to make. And I would add it's a decision, Macy, that you need to renew every single day. Every single day. You know, I get up in the morning and say, Lord, today of my own free will, I choose to serve Jesus. But... That has no value for the next day. The next day, I've got to make that choice all over again. We've got to be in a place, Macy, where we can look at ourselves in the mirror and say, no, today I choose to please God. And that means 
not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, I'm going to say no to that which my flesh wants so that I can say yes, God, to what you want for me. But it is a battle every day. Our flesh doesn't go down quietly. My flesh is strong and I have to fight it all the time. And so when I'm being tempted by something, it's a simple decision. Jesus or my flesh, I can't have both. And too many of us as Christians, we decide way too often to to satisfy the flesh instead of wanting to please the Lord. You know, when Paul writes, find out what pleases the Lord, that's pretty easy to do. We've got Bibles that tell us how to please the Lord. But our flesh is crying out over and over and over. Even the Apostle Paul, Macy, had this same struggle. Romans chapter 7, he said, What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 7.25 says. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. But Macy, don't be too hard on yourself. Just continue to fight and recognize that every time you're in this battle, the power of God lives in you and is available to you to say no to your flesh so you can say yes to him. We don't have to fail. And when we do, 1 John 1, nine says, we have an advocate. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So believe me, Macy, you are not alone in that struggle Um, We just fight every single day. Ivan, or Ivan, one of the two, says, Why isn't necessary to have an ordained pastor perform a marriage? It's really not, Ivan. It's it's not necessary. Um, You know, it's necessary to have... A um, uh, an ordained uh, or licensed person do it, and the state now, um, you know, pretty much licenses anybody. Uh, if the marriage is going to be legal, it needs to be licensed. Um, but but um, an ordained pastor, um, not necessary. Um, of course, if you're Christian, it ought to be what you want to do, but it isn't necessary at all. Let me go to this question, anonymous, that came in from our email inbox. Today there was an an article about a church in the Fort Worth area uh, whose stance on the LGBTQ culture is heavy-handed, advocating that capital punishment be applied to all gays. I think that stand is taking it too far. But what caught my eye was the subsequent article, Are There Any Christian Churches That Welcome LGBT People?, uh, and then it follows up with a list titled "List of Christian Denominations Affirming LGBT People." That's what got me. As you say, many times we welcome anyone who is LGBTQ to the church, but we will, in love, point out their sin and plead that they repent in turn. The writer of the article does not come from that viewpoint, and yet points to denominations that will actually embrace their sin rather than help them turn from it. This seems to be more of a battle for me as people lump born-again Christians with churches that the world classifies as Christian. These so-called churches that affirm the LGBT community makes it more difficult for us born-again Christians to tell the gay community that they are in sin and will be lost to heaven. That's what really got me upset, what we can do. Well, first and foremost, stop worrying about what other churches do. Um, you know, not everybody who calls himself as a Christian is a Christian. Jesus himself makes that clear. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Don't worry. Anybody looking for an excuse to sin is going to find it, and they're going to find people that support it. So yes, unfortunately, there are a lot of professing Christian churches out there that uh, affirm an LGBTQ person's uh, path to hell. And they say, it's okay, God loves you, and and they will be punished severely. We need to leave that to God. What we need to do is tell the truth in love and then let the Holy Spirit do the work. You can't win the argument. The Holy Spirit is the only power on earth, the only power on earth that can overcome the flesh in this world. Now, uh, since I only have a couple of minutes, let me deal with this church in Fort Worth. This church in Fort Worth is, uh, and I don't know the church you're speaking about, but there are other uh, churches like this all over the country. 
um, uh, they're just as unchristian. The people there are just as unsaved as um, those LGBTQ-affirming churches. They're misrepresenting God. This is a grievous sin, and the sin gets even more uh, um, grievous, and they're more accountable because they claim to represent God. So on both ends of the spectrum today, Anonymous, that you presented, um, they're, they're, they're really going to be called to account, and their punishment, they're severe. Jesus said some will be, be beaten with few blows and others with many blows. These are the people that will be beaten with many blows. And it will be a horrifying moment for them when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father in heaven. Uh, this is just a horrible, horrible, um, both of them are horrible examples of what uh, Jesus is all about. Loving people is telling them the truth in love. And um, are they going to find somebody who says, no, it's okay. God wants you to be happy. Of course they are. But that's between them and the Lord. And so we just keep telling the truth. And if somebody says, um, well, they don't, they, they're going to go to a church that says it's okay. Um, when people stop listening, I always say, stop talking. I think that's the best way to do it. Hey, thanks for the week we've had here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. Have a great weekend in church. Go find somebody who looks like they need somebody to to, to pray for them or to love on them. Be used by the Lord. Hey, have a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.